Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the chance to study together in your name and to share in the fellowship of believers, to share in prayer, Father, to share in uh, love for one another. Father, all these are things that are enabled by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, first to know you and then to love one another as you loved us. And Father, that is a blessing in itself and it is one we often overlook even as we thank you for so many things you've given us in our life and for many material blessings and health and for all those things we focus on so often. Let us never forget, Father, that the, the most important gift you've given us is the Holy Spirit in us by which we are made a child of God, by which we may share in the love you've shown us with one another now and by which we will uh, be in eternity with you. Father, thank you for the chance tonight as we study your word to see the details of your son and his suffering. It is not something, Father, that we come to uh, with joyful expectation, Father, so much as with a resignation that those events were necessary on our behalf and, and as horrible as they were for your son, Father, it is such a blessing to know that by his scars we have been made whole and, and we have been healed. Father, we want to give our attention to it tonight with a heart open to hear your word and to take from it what you've prepared, to learn from it, Father, so that it might guide us in our attempt to walk according to your name and your will. Father, let it be uh, the thing that stirs us onward to preach the good news to others as you give us opportunity. I pray for all those outcomes as we open your word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I am a, a little under the weather, unfortunately, which is to say that uh, you'll have to pardon the, the occasional sniffles and coughs maybe and throat clearings. I'll keep them to a minimum, but uh, I may do that from time to time. We actually touched on ch chapter 23 last week, if you remember, but we are going to go back into it in earnest tonight. Jesus' long night, you might even call it long nightmare, continues tonight as we return to Luke's account of the midnight trial of Jesus. Last week, you may remember, we examined the religious trial. And you have to remember, especially if you haven't been with us here, you'll, you'll have to know that there are actually two trials, uh, two types of trials, a religious trial first and then a civil trial. And even within that division, there are further divisions. You have two different religious trials at the hands of two different high priests. And in the case of the civil trial, which we begin tonight, you have a series of events themselves that break down into three separate moments. So when you consider that the religious trial started with Annas, continued to Caiaphas, and then Caiaphas took it a step further into the temple at daybreak so as to gain legitimacy for the verdict that was read, that's a three-part segment itself. You have Annas, you have Caiaphas, then you have Caiaphas again in the temple. Three pieces. Likewise, in this trial now that's civil, we start tonight, there's again three pieces. There will be Pilate and Jesus standing before Pilate, followed by Jesus going before Herod, and then ending with Jesus back before Pilate a second time. So there is some symmetry here, both to the religious end of the civil trial. Three parts to each. Together, they form a series of events that took place in a relatively short period of time, probably in the, in the span of maybe six to seven hours. That's where we are tonight. In the end, if you remember from last week, the religious leaders reached a predetermined verdict, one that they had in every intention to reach regardless of the facts. And that predetermined verdict of guilt led to a pronouncement of death by Caiaphas, by the Sanhedrin, in the temple. And then they are now prepared to bring Jesus before Pilate, before the Roman governor, in order to see that sentence carried out. For reasons we discussed last week, they were unable to do it themselves. They needed the Romans' assistance if they were going to put Jesus to death. So now the stage has been set 
for this trial before Pilate. Last week I told you already, we studied the first five verses of chapter 23. And I want to reread them tonight. We're not going to recover them in detail. Last night, I think we did that sufficiently last week. But I do want to give you some of the context so that as we move forward in the text, you still have these verses in mind. So let's begin in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him, meaning Jesus, of course, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee even as far as this place. So by way of review, I want to cover at least two things in passing. As I said, I don't want to reteach all the detail here, but, but there are two elements from these verses I do think we need to keep in mind in order to move forward and keep the text coherent tonight. First, we noted last week that the Jews did not bring to Pilate at this point the same charge that they convicted him of in their religious trial, the charge of blasphemy. So in the trial, the religious trial, what they did was they proposed, they proposed that Jesus needed to be put to death because he violated the law of blasphemy in, their, in that case. But they did not bring that charge before Pilate. And we said last week that's because there would have been absolutely no basis for Pilate to act on that charge. It wasn't a violation of Roman law to blaspheme the Jewish God. They didn't recognize that God in the first place. So they make no attempt to bring that charge before the, the leaders at this moment. Instead, what they bring out is an assortment of civil charges, hoping that basically something will stick. This is the old picture of throwing enough stuff up on the wall and hope something sticks. That's their approach here before Pilate. In fact, in John's Gospel, which we looked at last week, we're told that the first tactic they took as they met Pilate was to basically not name any charge whatsoever and to simply say, if this man hadn't done something wrong, we wouldn't be bringing him to you. Or in other words, just trust us. He's worthy of death. Just do what we ask. That gained them absolutely nothing, as you can imagine, because Pilate's not going to play into the desires of these people. He's not a man who's going to be manipulated by the Jews. And so he says, I find no guilt in this man. Remember last week the reason why he said that so simply, so quickly? It was because the appearance of Christ, having already been beaten and bloodied, torn clothes probably, a man who doesn't strike a particular imposing presence all by himself, standing before Pilate and being told by these Jewish leaders that this is a man who desired to overthrow Rome, Pilate looks at the guy and then looks back at the Jews and says, I don't find any guilt in this man. Because it's self-evident, your charge is not credible. There's nothing about his appearance that convinces me he had any hope to do what you're claiming he was trying to do. So he's very quickly rebuffing their charge, their accusation. The second thing to remember from last week then is the important detail that we looked at out of verse 5. In the tirade of charges against Jesus, the Jewish leaders blurt out that this man has been teaching all the way from Galilee to here. Their point in that statement is to communicate the breadth of his attempts to overthrow the Roman authorities, to be working at it all the way from the Galilee down to here, as if he's been on a campaign, if you will. Pilate doesn't get that from the comment. Pilate doesn't pick up on that detail. What he does pick up on, though, is the region, the fact that he is from the Galilee. It got Pilate's attention. <clears throat> Looking forward two verses in Luke 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. 
So the Jews' reference to the Galilee gave Pilate a convenient opportunity to pass the buck. That's what he's doing here. It, inter- it also introduces a new character, a man named Herod. I want to give you a little historical background on him because it will help you understand why this shuttle is taking place, why Pilate and even Herod are in the same city, for that matter, and what the relationship between these two men are. At the time of Jesus' death, which is, of course, the time of this point in Luke's Gospel, Rome ruled most of Judea through governors, or through procurators, they were called, or prefects was another term. And those terms have differences of meaning, but we'll use them synonymously here tonight. Those men held the power of life and death within the province. They held the power to tax. That was their principal purpose. It was to police and to tax. And they also commanded a small legion of Roman soldiers, usually around 3,000. They were the arm of Caesar in that province. These leaders were appointed by Rome, and they often had a variety of titles. I've already mentioned some of them to you, governor, prefect, procurator. They would occasionally be called tetrarch or ethnarch. These were all terms that referred to their role or to their level of power, sort of like you and I might talk of colonel, general, and so on. They, they, They had military significance in some cases, or secretary, assistant secretary. They had civilian title equivalencies. So there were all these titles meant something different in the Roman rank and structure, but they were all essentially doing the same role of running the province on behalf of Rome. On a couple of occasions in history, though, these men took upon themselves the name of king of the Jews. The difference being that these were men who had some claim to be of Jewish descent, and they would gain enough authority within the Roman structure that either by self-decree or more often by a vote of the Roman Senate, they were given the title of King of the Jews. One of these men was Herod the Great. Many of us know that name because he was by far the most famous of those men who took the title of King of the Jews over that province, over the province of Judea. He ruled from about 37 B.C., until 4 B.C. You might know him well as the man who was responsible for murdering all the children in the time of Christ's birth in an attempt to kill the Messiah. That was the Herod the Great. That's the Herod you'd be thinking of there out of Matthew's Gospel. He began first, though, as simply a governor over Galilee, which was a northern province, what you would think of today as northern Israel, in 43 B.C. Through artful politics, back through the Roman Senate and friends he had, in Roman government, he was appointed by Mark Antony and Octavian to the position of governor of Galilee. Then he became a governor over all of Judea. And then by a provision of the Roman Senate in 37 B.C., the Roman Senate voted him as king of the Jews. So he was actually given that title by a vote of the Roman Senate. And then he took on that title and basically held power over the nation of Israel for about 30 years. Though he claimed to be a Jew, he was actually descended from the Edomites, which themselves descend from Esau. So if you know the story of Genesis, you have Esau and you have Jacob. And it is through Jacob that, of course, the descendants of Abraham will be numbered, not through Esau. Esau is a godless man, according to Hebrews. And the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, were long enemies of the nation of Israel. By this day and time, the Edomites essentially had ceased to exist, though you couldn't have found them if you were looking for them. But, of course, their descendants were still in the region. And Herod traced his ancestry back to Edomites. So to a true Jew, he wasn't a Jew. But because he could say he was descended from Abraham, he claimed the title and ruled as if he were a Jew, calling himself king of the Jews, claiming a right, therefore, to the throne of David, claiming that he was the natural successor to that earlier ruler. 
But he was never accepted as a king by the Jews in his own day. He ruled basically through fear and oppression and might. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, the kingdom of Judea was divided into fourths. And those fourths were awarded by Rome to the descendants of Herod. Herod Antipas became the ruler of the northern part of Judea known as Galilee. Herod Philip received modern-day Syria and Lebanon. And Herod Archelaus gained uh, another fourth of the kingdom, including Judea and Samaria. So you have Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, and you have Herod Antipas. There was a fourth son who got another piece, but it was well outside of Judea and another region of, of the Middle East. Those three sons, though, had pieces of Samaria, of Judea, and the surrounding areas. By the time of the events of Luke 23, and this brings us up to where we are now in the text, by the time we get to the events of Luke 23, Herod Archelaus had been deposed by the Roman authorities. So by this point, Herod Archelaus doesn't exist anymore in terms of a ruler. He was actually deposed, by the way, for excessive cruelty against the Jews. Boy, he must have been pretty bad. And also for breaking the Mosaic Law. And from Rome's perspective, that was causing so much dissent among the Jews, they would rather not have a ruler stirring up trouble among the subjects. So he was taken out of power. In Archelaus' place, the Romans continued to rule over Judea, but rather than put another king or a descendant of the king in place of Archelaus, they just brought in a Roman procurator, and that was Pilate. So when Pilate took over Judea, he was the man sent in to replace Archelaus, who had inherited it from his father, Herod the Great. So at this point, you still have Herod Antipas ruling in the northern part, in Galilee, having inherited that piece from his father, Herod the Great. But his brother has long since been deposed, and now the southern part of Judea, the main part to include Jerusalem, is under Pilate's authority. So you have a king, and you have a Roman procurator sharing responsibility over what we consider modern-day Israel today. And so they're neighbors, if you will. They're neighboring powers. So the Herod we're talking about here in chapter 23 of Luke is Herod Antipas, the ruler of the Galilee. Like Pilate, and we said this last week, Herod did not live in Jerusalem. Uh, Herod actually lived up in the Galilee, as Pilate lived in Caesarea. But both men traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilate, we said last week, he traveled there to help keep the peace during this time every year that was particularly troublesome. Jews often uh, were known to get stirred up during the Passover. So Pilate's there to watch the peace. Herod, on the other hand, is there because as a Jew, he's coming down to celebrate the Passover. So he's in town for the Passover for himself. Pilate hears that this man, Jesus, is a Galilean. And he knows that Herod's in town. And since Jesus, technically, is a subject of Herod's, it becomes a convenient excuse for Pilate to basically take this problem and hand it to somebody else. So he says, oh, this man's a Galilean? Well, let me send him to his king. And he sends him across town to wherever Herod was staying, probably in the palace, Herod's palace in town. Remember, though Herod was technically the authority over Christ, as Christ's king, if you will, the, the man who had rule over that part of the world or that part of, of the country, it did not mean that he could impose capital punishment. Only Pilate could do that, particularly in Jerusalem. So the case would still be that if Jesus were to be found guilty by Herod, it would still require that Pilate agree to that sentence and then carry it out, or Jesus still could not have been put to death by Herod alone. So Pilate knows that if Herod agrees that this man is guilty and deserves death, then he can essentially wash his hands of the verdict and just become an instrument of carrying it out. He can become nothing more than the executioner. But he'll leave the dirty work to Herod. 
And he's giving Herod essentially the first chance here to, to determine Jesus' fate. Okay, with that background, Luke 23, verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him, and was hoping to see some signs performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. We saw mentioned way back, if you were with me, way back in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, we saw mentioned Herod's interest in Jesus. You may remember back in that chapter, we're told that Herod had been hearing about all that Jesus was doing in the Galilee and sought after him to see him at that time. And he's doing it essentially because he wants to see the tricks. He wants to see the miracles. His, his interest in Herod is not spiritual, or in Jesus, of course, is not spiritual. It's in the same way that somebody wants to slow down and look at a car wreck on the way to work. It's this morbid interest or this curiosity or, you know, for entertainment purposes. I want to see you do some of that magic for me that everyone keeps talking about. It was also in chapter 13 that we studied here in this group back in January that we heard that the Pharisees warned Jesus as he got on the road to Jerusalem, walking toward Jerusalem from the Galilee, knowing that he was headed down to be crucified. As he begins that long walk, he's caught at times along the way by the Pharisees who say, don't go, don't go, Herod wants to kill you. They were using it, obviously, as a tactic to try to stop Jesus from reaching Jerusalem. And, of course, we understood when we studied it there that that was simply a made-up story by the Pharisees. It wasn't actually the case that Herod wanted to kill him. This scene in Luke 23 is the best proof I could offer you of the fact that what the Pharisees were saying was nothing but lies. Herod's interest in Jesus barely rises above amusement. You know, he's, he's intrigued by the man, but only as a passing fancy. He's not threatened by him at all. And now Jesus stands before Herod in a sense on trial. If what you saw with Pilate a moment earlier didn't sound very much like a trial, well, this one won't be much better. But in reality, that's what this is. You know, you and I think of trials in the sense of a very prescribed, very rigorous style of activity where there's all these rules about how a trial begins and under what circumstances and all these different players playing all these different roles. Well, there was certainly some order to the way the Romans did it, to be sure, but it didn't necessarily have to be carried out as strictly as you and I would expect it to be done today in our courts. When you stand before someone who has the right of the sword, the term is, that that's a term that means this person has the right to execute you. They, they have the authority to proclaim capital punishment on a prisoner. The procurator had the right of the sword. That's, that's what Pilate had. When you're standing before someone with the right of the sword and you're under accusation, uh, that's a trial. That's a moment where you're working to claim and prove your defense, and there's probably accusations coming from some corner trying to put you down. So it's a trial in every sense of the word. There's an opportunity to prove your innocence or to be found guilty, and your, your life is on the line. So there was a trial with Pilate, but it didn't last long because Pilate had no interest in the, the proceedings. We're now with Herod. As I said earlier, he had no spiritual interest in Jesus, so what we expect him to be asking questions about here probably didn't come down to the issue of guilt or innocence. We don't know what those questions are. Luke alone records this moment and he doesn't give us any detail about what was said. But just knowing what Herod's interest was in Jesus and how little he cared about Jesus as a man or what he did, it's probably the case that the questions were little more than idle chit-chat. Maybe questions like, what did you do in the Galilee? Or where did you get your powers from? Or can you show me one of those now? Or whatever may have happened. 
I doubt it was an attempt to really get down to the truth of who Jesus was and what he was accused of. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it's interesting that the chief priests and the scribes are all there as well, continually accusing Jesus. So I get a picture in my mind that as they're moving Jesus from Pilate to Herod, all the chief priests and the scribes kind of shuttle along behind, following him wherever they go, so that wherever he ends up, they're going to be right there. Because remember, this whole series of events has been orchestrated by these men. The only reason this, all, any of this is taking place is because these men conspired to make it so. They're not about to give up. And so they're, they're intent on following Jesus everywhere. Do you see the work of the enemy here? Judas himself was indwelt by Satan. But Satan has probably countless uh, friends, if you will, in the form of the demon world. And on top of that, every unbeliever is an empty vessel. If you think of the parable that Jesus teaches about the man who is indwelt by a spirit, the spirit leaves him. He is swept clean, but then seven more come back in. <clears throat> Every unbeliever is an empty vessel. Whether he's indwelt by a demon or not, he is always available to Satan and to Satan's demons. Whether for indwelling specifically, which I do believe takes place from time to time, or simply as a one who can be influenced externally, in either case, every unbeliever is potentially the instrument of Satan and Satan's minions. That is how Satan does his work in this world. That is his principal tool. It's to work through the evil of men, and to manipulate through fear, we're told in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, so as to accomplish his purpose. And these scribes, these leaders of the nation of Israel, are acting according to the enemy's wishes in this very moment, under their influence, for the purpose the enemy is attempting to achieve here in destroying the Messiah. What's interesting to me is their puppets. I bet if we were to go back to this point in time, this moment in history, and stand there with these men and take them aside, almost like the reporter on the street kind of a moment, and ask them about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And if, if we were to even take the next step and suggest to them that, do you, do you think that maybe what you're doing here is actually the enemy working in your mind and in your heart to influence your thoughts and to propel you forward into this, this act that you're in the middle of? What do you think the reaction would be to that, to that question? Do you think they would agree with me? Do you think that thought ever struck their mind? Remember, these are the elders of the nation of Israel. These are the men who prided themselves on following the one true God. These were the keepers of the law. These were the righteous men of their day, at least as far as they were concerned. What it shows us, maybe more than anything, is the depths of self-deception that are possible for an unbeliever. That to be empty as a vessel, meaning to not have the Holy Spirit indwelling, that's the one permanent way to, to be filled, if you will, to be taken off the market from the enemy's control, if you're not in that state and you're available to him, it does not mean that you know it. Far from it. Most unbelievers never do know it. Most have no awareness whatsoever that the enemy exists, much less how much control the enemy, through his agents, can have in their life. I mean, we all have sin as a function of our own body, and that sin drives us to do any number of bad things. That, that much we all know is true. But that is different and separate from what the enemy himself has the power to do with those he chooses to go after. To an unbeliever, he can directly control and influence what they do and how they think, to the point of indwelling them if that's what he wishes to do. To a believer, he can tempt you so that your own natural fleshly sin kicks in in the face of that temptation and you choose to do the wrong thing. So it's a different tactic, if you will, in the case of a believer, but he can still make an effort to change the behavior of a believer. If the believer agrees with it and goes with his flesh rather than with the spirit, he can be put to use by the enemy. What God was doing in this moment, which we've already seen 
Luke and John and other of the Gospel writers make comment on from time to time is that all of this was happening according to God's sovereign will and purpose. That though the enemy himself thought he was doing something that he wanted to do to thwart God, even in that, he was being used by God to do something that ultimately was against his best interests. That's how complete God's sovereignty is. If you ever get concerned that in the life of an individual human, God can't be sovereign in every action or every thought they have, then consider that he was doing it even with Satan, who is a more powerful creature than we are in this age, in our current state, then you certainly have to give God opportunity to have the same power within the life of any human being. These men did what they thought was right in their own eyes for their own evil purposes, and yet every step they took was according to God's will. Not that he gave them the sin they already had, but that he used their sinful desires to accomplish his good purpose. And he is no less capable of doing that with you and I, not to say in our sin necessarily, though he could, but in our good thoughts, in our, in our righteous works as well. God is in control of what we do. That is how he controls the world in general. And then one last thought in passing. Can you imagine how spiritually dark the room must have been for Jesus as he's sitting there, both with Pilate but as well with Herod? I have to believe he's surrounded not just by unbelievers, but by a room full of unbelievers who are either indwelt with the enemy and his minions or directly under their influence. You know, if you've ever read books like This Present Darkness or novels of a similar ven- uh, a genre where you're looking at, at fictionalized uh, versions of what goes on in the spiritual realm, many of those I think are actually quite helpful because even if the details aren't true fact, I think the principles they support are true out of Scripture. There is the same, you know, as you hear Paul say in, in uh, Ephesians, the spiritual powers of darkness are really those that war with us. It's not the people through whom they work. He must have sensed the true darkness of that moment. It must have felt like an oppression you and I have never felt, to be at the disposal, if you will, of the enemy in that moment, surrounded by people who were being used by the enemy. In that kind of a setting, inevitably, this interrogation turned into sport. What might have started with some legitimate purpose quickly dissolved down into nothing more than a torture as Herod's soldiers then began to mock and and eventually abuse Jesus. And then what we see Herod do here is very interesting. It's actually an inside joke between him and Pilate. And it becomes, we're told, the basis for a new friendship. Herod returns Jesus to Pilate dressed in an elegant robe. And what this robe denotes, what this robe suggests is royalty. And it could very well be the case that what Herod put on Jesus was one of his own robes. That would make the most sense because what other robe would he have at his disposal but one of his own wearing? Something that was appropriate for him to wear. That's a supposition on my part, but regardless of whether it's one of Herod's own robes or not, the point is it's a robe that would suggest Jesus is royalty. That's what he puts on Jesus and he sends him back to Pilate that way. Now, as Luke mentions, these two men had long been enemies. And the reasons probably stemmed from Herod's connection to his father, Herod the Great. As a descendant of the great king Herod, Antipas naturally desired to follow in his his father's footsteps. Antipas wanted to become king of the Jews in the same way that his father was. A king that would unite all of Judea under one authority, under his authority. But if he were ever to obtain that title, it could only happen at the expense of Pilate. Because Pilate was now the ruler over the large section of what used to be Herod the Great's territory. So if Antipas is known to want to rise to that power, and Pilate stands in his way, effectively, then it's natural that both men would look at each other quite warily. 
that Pilate would be very suspicious of Herod, of course, and Herod would be likewise looking for every opportunity to get, to get rid of Pilate and perhaps even worry himself that Pilate is thinking about doing the same thing in reverse. So there's a natural animosity there. When Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, it was basically an olive branch. It was a political move as much as it was an attempt to get rid of Jesus because it was a tacit recognition of Herod's authority over Jesus. It was a way of Pilate saying to Herod, I recognize you have authority. I recognize your authority over Galilee. Here's a Galilean. I'm sending him to you so that you can have the authority over this Galilean. It was probably the first time Pilate had ever done anything that gave Herod any sense that he respected him or saw him as a legitimate ruler over a portion of Judea. But the fact that Pilate was willing to submit to Herod's authority, even on such a small matter, said a lot to Herod about Pilate's willingness to respect him. So here's what, Pilate, here's what Herod does in reverse. To sort of take the olive, olive branch and return it to Pilate, what Herod then does is he basically entertains himself at Jesus' expense for a short time and then sends him back dressed as if Jesus were king of the Jews. He basically mocks himself to Pilate. You know, the, the title king of the Jews carries with it a lot of political baggage. Because you're not just saying that you are king over this region. You're claiming that you are king as if you were a rival to Caesar. Now, it wasn't meant that way necessarily. The Romans didn't take it that way. That's why they were willing to grant the title. But it always carried a little bit of that implication that someone who would want to be called king of the Jews, maybe what they really want is to uproot Caesar and Rome. You're never quite sure what someone means when they say they want to be king of the Jews. When he sent Jesus back, dressed as if he were king of the Jews, and yet obviously pathetic, it's a mocking if nothing else, he's self-mocking the role of king of the Jews. It's a playful way of, of, of basically saying, I'm submitting to your authority, here's, your, here's the king of the Jews back for your decision. It, it makes Pilate feel good that Herod is not a, above mocking that very term, mocking the idea of a king. And it takes out the, the sense of competition, at least for the moment. And so they become friends. Herod never gave up hope to become king of the Jews. You may remember his wife, Herodias. Remember, she was the one who used seduction to trick her husband, Herod, into killing John the Baptist. We read that in an earlier chapter. Well, she never gave up either, hoping that her husband would become king of the Jews. And if she eventually convinced Herod Antipas to go to Rome and appeal directly to Caesar to receive the title. And so the dutiful husband does as Herodias wants. He travels to Rome, but when he appears before the emperor, who was Caligula at that time, he's promptly removed from power, and he's deposed to Gaul, where he spends the rest of his life with his wife in poverty. So whatever was going on that day, Caligula wasn't having a very good day, and he happened to pick the wrong day to walk in on him. They both die there in poverty. So in this moment, the irony is, Herod stands over Jesus, Herod in power as king, Herod in wealth, Herod in the position of authority, Je Jesus, pitiful and weak, totally submitted to his authority and abused all the way. And at the end of his life, Herod lived as the pauper, as destitute, but upon judgment day, this very same man will stand before this very same Jesus. For all I know, based on what I read out of, out of Revelation, when the books are opened, he will not be found in the book of life. And the book of the deeds will be opened and the deeds of his life will be read and he will be found to have sinned. And this whole event takes place with Jesus standing there and Herod standing before him, as will every other unbeliever who, who faces that moment. Do you think that, that the irony won't be lost on either of them, much less a crowd if there are others watching? It, it'll be a really remarkable moment. The good news is we'll all be there to see it. 
It's a striking thing to consider that these roles reverse in perfect unity from where they are now. Jesus standing in judgment over Herod. A reminder that ultimate justice isn't found in this life, but it is found. Luke 23.13 Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor is Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. <clears throat> now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found nothing, I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. I read that large section because as Luke records the last stage of this three-part event, this this three-part trial, he covers essentially several events in passing. Luke kind of glosses over some of the details here because he's really just trying to get to the main point. But there are some important details. Like when we studied earlier the religious trial, I think it's going to be necessary for us to take a little time to look at the other Gospels here to see all that Luke didn't cover because there's some interesting quality to it. We really want to see more about it, because it tells us a lot more about the political dynamics, both of what was going on with Pilate himself, but also what was going on in the crowd. Let's look at what Luke said first, and then we'll we'll dive off into the other Gospels as we go. After receiving Jesus back from Herod, the civil trial here is going to conclude with Pilate, and he brings, we're told, the religious leaders together and the people, which means at this point there's a crowd gathering around the praetorium, It's probably the case that they're there in part because of this trial of Jesus, Jesus being notable in his day that that may have brought a crowd all by itself, but also because of this tradition that on the day of Passover, they would release a prisoner to them. It's, It's sort of a day of amnesty, if you will, for one prisoner. It had become a tradition. The Romans liked to do it because it gained favor with the with the Jews and the Jews looked forward to the moment. So they were gathered together and Pilate, as you'll see here and you'll see it even more as we look at the other Gospels, he works incredibly hard to avoid crucifying Jesus. Now, I'm not going to say that he is absolved of guilt because of that. We'll look at that point later. But I do want you to note how hard he works to avoid coming to the sentence that eventually he reaches. Because there's actually four or five, depending on how you count it, different attempts by Pilate to not crucify Jesus, basically to release him. And every one of those attempts is rebuffed in some way by the religious leaders in their attempt to manipulate the crowd or to manipulate Pilate himself. And as I said, most of that's recorded elsewhere. His first attempt to release Jesus is recorded in verses 13 through 16 in the verses we read out of Luke. Pilate's attempt here is pretty straightforward. He basically says, I have no basis on which to condemn this man. You know, this is no proof. You charged him with rebellion. You claim he was trying to cause an insurrection. But I don't see any evidence of that. And Pilate is not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be used by these people to accomplish their own purpose. Luke makes sort of a passing reference here to Pilate's 
second attempt to do the very same thing, to release Jesus. And his second attempt is a little different. To see the details of that second attempt, though, we need to look at Mark. So in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark, we see the second attempt in more detail than is given in Luke. Chapter 15, verse 7. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them and saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So Mark records that what uh, Pilate did, very, actually very interesting here, is a very crafty move on Pilate's part. He attempts to force the crowd to select Jesus to be freed by offering them such an unpalatable alternative. Barabbas was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a man who really no one in the Jewish community would have loved him any more than the Romans did, for that matter. I mean, even though he was trying to be an insurrectionist against Rome, in and of itself, that did not play into the interests of most Jews. And the fact that the man was willing to murder to do it didn't help his case at all either. So Barabbas is not seen as a hero by the Jews. He's not seen as a man they want to support. To be honest, if Jesus hadn't been their alternative, Barabbas probably would have gone to the cross. There's really no reason to suspect the crowd would have wanted him to be set free. And because of that, Pilate is banking on the fact that the Jews are going to choose to release Christ and not to release Barabbas. By the way, the name Barabbas means son of the father. And depending on where you go, there are some contemporary sources to the Bible, uh, non-biblical sources, that claim that Barabbas' full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a common name, by the way, Yeshua. It's a, it's a, it means Joshua, literally. So it is potentially the case that you had Jesus, the son of the father, standing next to Jesus, the son of the father. And it wouldn't be unusual to see that because God is so often working contrast to make points. So it strikes me as perfectly consistent with God's pattern in Scripture to have selected a man as the alternative whose name suggests the very thing that is truly standing next to him. That one is is essentially a counterfeit of the other. Both of these men, by the way, are accused of the same crime. Did you notice that? They're both accused of sedition. They're both accused of insurrection, of rebellion, although only one is truly guilty of it, of course. The crowd chooses that Jesus would die, the one who, would, uh, who is not truly guilty of the crime, but rather is the one who's innocent. We're also told, very importantly, we're told that Pilate has now become aware of what's really going on in the hearts of the Jewish leaders. He knows they are envious of Jesus, which means he's discovered their real motives here. Really what he's come to understand is Jesus wasn't so much a true threat to Rome as he was a true threat to the, Rome, to the Jewish leadership in some respect. Now, keep in mind, Pilate doesn't yet understand why. He knows they're envious of Jesus, but they do, he does not understand what it is about this pitiful man that is causing such a concern to the religious leaders of, of Judea. He only knows that it is something between them that is forcing this concern. It is not the case that Jesus is truly a threat to Rome. He's figured that much out. And that's partly why he's so insistent on not crucifying him. He doesn't want to play into the hands. He doesn't want to be manipulated by these Jewish leaders. Mark records that manipulation, by the way, at least a part of it, in verse 11, in the verses I've already read. He said the chief priests were stirring up the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas. What that suggests to me is that had the crowd been left to their own, there's a pretty good chance they would have asked for Jesus to be released. 
that Pilate's scheme, in other words, had a pretty good shot at working. That Barabbas was, in fact, unpalatable to the crowd. But in some way, in some measure, these men, driven by evil desires, under the power and the influence of the enemy, working within the crowd, saying whatever they were saying, giving reason to the crowd to choose for Barabbas to be released. So they're still at work. You know, though they were there earlier in the trials trying to accuse Christ, they haven't given up now. Now that Pilate's appealing to the crowd, they go down and work the crowd a little bit. They're insistent in getting their way with respect to Jesus. So the crowd calls out again for Barabbas to be released, and so now Pilate's second attempt to release Jesus has been foiled. But he's not done yet. He still sees no reason to give in to the demands. I'm beginning to see a little bit of sort of professional pride here. You know, here's a man who's got a tough job ruling over the Judea province was not easy. Ruling over Jews was not easy. And he's worried about a precedent here, I believe, where if he were to give in too easily to these men and let them get their way with Jesus, he, he puts himself on a slippery slope where over time they'll continue to bring to him cases like this in an attempt to manipulate their way to the justice they desire. And he's got to stand firm. He's got to show that he is not going to be manipulated, that he's not going to act contrary to his own best interests. And as I said, he doesn't understand the true origin of their hatred for Jesus. So I, I believe that's still nagging him a little bit too. We have to go to John's Gospel at this point to see the next attempt. The next time Pilate attempts to release Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 1 is where we go next. John chapter 19 picks up at the point after the discussion with Barabbas. 19 verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And he began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. We'll pause there. You can see, I, I don't know about you, but I really see Pilate's frustration growing here, particularly in that last comment. You get the sense he's starting to get exasperated with these people. They won't listen to reason. They won't see the things he sees. After his second attempt to release Jesus, John says he takes Jesus out and scourges him. Now, scourging was a devastating form of punishment. The man, anyone who was scourged, was basically tied to a pole and then whipped 40 times. But in this case, the whip would have embedded in the ends of the leather small pieces of glass or bits of metal, with the intent being that as you were being hit with this, and by the way, it wasn't just on the back. They would hit all sides, front and back of the body. It was, a, it was an all-body workout. Okay? And the point of this was not just to whip with pain, of course. The point of this was that these little bits tied to the ends of the leather would cut so deeply into the flesh that they would rip pieces of the flesh away as they were hitting the body or, or cut into it so deeply they would leave deep gouges, deep lacerations. By the time this thing was over, in most cases, there would be so much flesh gone in places along the body, you'd see the bones in places. You could even see uh, internal organs were visible. Uh, it was not unusual for people to die in the scourging itself. And if, if you did live through it, it was only a precursor to death eventually because of infection or other problems. I mean, you weren't going to be in good shape when it was over. I'm not doing this for the sake of just making you squirm, but I think Scripture tells us this, so we ought to give our attention to it. 
Isaiah tells us that Jesus was so disfigured that he no longer looked like a human man. In Isaiah 52:13, we hear this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. So Isaiah makes clear that just to look upon him, you, 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 know, you, don't, you almost don't recognize him as human anymore. And it's probably because of the scourging and the toll it takes on the body. It's remarkable to consider how much he put up with before the cross. And then the cross. Some inventive soldier here must have thought it'd be funny if we play king for a, you know, for a minute with Jesus. So they go out and they find a, a bunch of thorns from some kind of plant, some kind of bush, and they, they make a little head covering with it, and they stick it on his head. And of course, the thorns are going to cut into the flesh, and that starts bleeding on the head to go along with whatever else was going on in his body at that point. So now there's blood coming down his face as well. And they put this robe back on him, which I'm sure didn't feel very good. And after they've done this, Pilate now brings Jesus before the crowd again. Now, what's he doing this for? Why scourge him and then bring him out like this again? What's Pilate's purpose in doing this? Well, you can basically see it if you put yourself in the crowd's point of view for just a moment. Looking up, I don't know if it's on a balcony or if it's at ground level, but you can see the man. You see him walk Jesus out in this state with the thorns and the, and the coat on him, but you know, the disfigurement is already visible. Do you have sympathy for someone like that? Do you yell up at somebody in that state, crucify him, or do you maybe gasp a little? You know, is there a sense of just awe, and, and even if you don't particularly like Jesus, don't you have a, a sense of compassion in the moment, maybe just a twinge of, of, of sympathy for the man? So much so that perhaps now you're, you, you kind of take some of the wind out of the sails in the crowd from their cries of crucify him, crucify him. Maybe you, you bring him back to earth for a minute because this is hardly a man who has not suffered already. This is hardly somebody who is standing there defiantly you know, giving you reason to want to, to yell out against him. This is somebody that you know is, is suffering greatly and, and you're, probably, you're probably moved to the point of compassion. That's Pilate's purpose. That's his expectation. You want blood, I'll give you blood. Had enough? But what happens in response to that tactic? It probably would have worked. It probably had its intended effect because we're told that the ones who speak out first are the leaders. Did you notice that? It's the scribes and the chief priests who are the ones who begin to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And I think the scripture says it that way because it's probably the case that they're the only ones saying it at that point. That whatever others might have been in the crowd in agreement, most are not at this point as bloodthirsty as those men still are. And they are intent on leading this crowd into one decision and one decision only. And they're not giving up. And they're not showing any compassion. And sensing the tide might be turning, they up the cries. They chime in, crucify, crucify. And to this, Pilate, and this is where I say I think he's getting exasperated. This is where I think his disgust now is starting to rise up. To that response, he says, you crucify him yourself. Which was really a pointless statement because he knew they couldn't and they knew they couldn't. It wasn't a statement meant to say, you now have permission to do it. It was really just a flippant comment, said in disgust, said in frustration probably, uh, really just to indicate that I don't agree with you. And so his third attempt to free Jesus is thwarted. John tells us then in the rest of chapter 19, going further, 
of the fourth attempt by Pilate to free Jesus. The Jews answered him, and what he means by that, of course, is what I just read in the prior verse 6, when he says, you crucify him yourself. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made effort to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate had just told the Jews, you know, you go crucify him yourself. And now in response to that, the Jewish leadership, and this is who I believe is actually instigating this, I believe, again, the Jewish leadership is spreading this commentary, spreading these ideas, and the crowd is picking up on it. They respond by saying, he's violated our law. They basically drop all pretense for all the previous false accusations. They basically finally give Pilate what he's wanted. They're telling Pilate the true reason why they hate him so much. Pilate's finally getting the answer to that question. Oh, I see what it is. He has called himself the Son of God, and that violates your law, and that's why you're angry with him. Now I understand. And the effect that news has on Pilate is to make him afraid. Isn't that interesting? In fact, we're told he's even more afraid. Which tells me that this whole scene and all that's been happening with it has Pilate worried. And probably for several reasons. One is just the general discontent of the crowd and what might arrive out of that. Some kind of rebellion, some kind of riot in the street. You know, one of the fastest ways that a Roman procurator would lose his position is if he could not keep the peace. If there was a riot or insurrection, the first person they took out of power when the Romans rode into town to to put down the rebellion was whoever was running the show at that time. So that's, that's his first concern. So he's not, he cannot ignore the cries of the crowd entirely. His second concern, though, is the one I mentioned earlier. He can't become a puppet. He can't become so easily manipulated by their desires that he loses his ability to enforce his point of view within that culture. And that's at the other side of this equation. On the one hand, he's too tough with them, they riot. On the other hand, he's too easy with them, and he loses respect and power. He's trying to walk this fine line. And now when he hears that these people are mad at Jesus because he claims to be the Son of God, knowing the Jews' fervor for their law, remember, who was removed in power earlier for not having respected the Jewish law sufficiently? None other than the man that Pilate replaced. So Pilate knows the history here is if you don't respect the Jews and their concern for their law, it's likely the case that Rome pulls you out. So he's even more afraid now for the very fact that this issue is not really one about insurrection. No, it's about the law. And that causes him to want to be even more careful with dealing with Jesus. So he comes back in. He says, tell me who you are again. Let's start this over. What is this I hear? And of course, Jesus doesn't answer. He refuses to answer. And in his his frustration in the moment, he says, don't you know what I can do here? Don't you have a self-interest in replying The self-interest being that if you don't satisfy me, I can put you to death. Don't you think that's enough reason to defend yourself? And Jesus' response here, really in keeping with the theme of what we've been studying all along here, is you're not in control. You think you're in control, but you're not in control. No more than the ones out there who are calling for my crucifixion think that they're in control. 
This is all orchestrated by my Father for purposes you don't even understand. I'm putting words in his mouth, but I think you get the point. And it could not happen except that my Father granted. It could not happen. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This, this whole commentary of Jesus in response to, to Pilate's comment, what, clear and compelling, what a clear and compelling statement it provides us of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. I mean, we touched on that earlier tonight, so I don't want to repeat all that. But just looking at what we read in those two verses, or in that one verse, Pilate here is doing only what God permits. Was Pilate sinning? Yes, absolutely. Despite his awareness that Jesus was innocent, he nevertheless puts Jesus to death. For whatever reasons he had, when we look at the end of the story, the bottom line is the same. He knew Jesus was innocent. He declared it as such multiple times, and he still in the end puts Jesus to death. That's a sin. Never mind all the other sins of his life. The point is, can he say he is innocent of Jesus' blood? Absolutely not. But like all men, he is an instrument of God. Which means that as creator, God has unrivaled authority over his creation. To include, as I mentioned earlier, using the sin of men when he desires to do so to accomplish his purpose. When God uses sin, it does not excuse the sin. It simply means that God has the power to work through our sin to accomplish a greater good. It simply reflects His sovereignty. There is a concept that seeps into our thinking sometimes. Maybe not you and I, if if we're good to study our Bible regularly, but certainly among the common man, and even among many Christians, that sees the world's order as falling under two realms, the good God and the bad God. Our God meaning the good God, and Satan principally being that bad God, and we sometimes run the risk of equating to them equal authority and equal power in this world. As if they're on either end of a rope and there's a tug of war and some days Satan's winning and some days God is winning. That is so unbiblical as to not even reflect the God of the Bible. Satan exists for the same reason you and I do. There is still yet more work God intends to do in his creation, and that work depends on having Satan exist for some period of time. But the fact that he lets him exist doesn't mean he doesn't control what happens. Quite the opposite. It supports the view that Satan, being a created being, exists only because it is God's purpose to let him, and therefore all he does is falling into God's purpose somehow. It is a statement of God's sovereignty. All these events, by the way, we know from Scripture, were foretold by God, therefore they're being directed by God, therefore they are according to God's will. I sometimes find it interesting in discussions about God's sovereignty how easily people mix up two principles of Scripture, foreknowledge and providence. God has foreknowledge, absolutely. He knows the future. But that is completely separate and independent from the fact that He also controls the future. People often think that because God tells you something's going to happen, it isn't to say that He's controlling it, it's just to reflect that He knows about it. Hogwash. Scripture tells us He knows it because He creates it. In fact, he says it is that way for his purpose, for a will of his making, for for reasons of his own desire. And it is the fact that he tells us what's going to happen because he wants us to know what he's intent on doing. Genesis 18:17. The Lord said when he spoke to Abraham, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do right before he goes in to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah?" That's the God we serve, one who decides to let us in on the plans he has for his creation. Not one that spun the top, stood back and said, I wonder how this is going to turn out. 
It is by grace that we even know what His plan is. By the way, the, the thorn of crowns, the crown of thorns that Jesus wears is an interesting tie back to Genesis as well. We know that the fall, the, the world we live in now that, that, that postdates Adam's fall, is a world marked by a curse, and that curse is seen in part in the form of thorns and thistles, a, a reference to the fact that the world is no longer pain-free and no longer free of toil, but is rather marked by toil and effort and frustration and pain. It's the curse that exists on the physical world. It is also the curse that's responsible for you and I suffering physical death. It is that same curse that Christ, we're told in Scripture, takes upon Himself and satisfies on the cross. I don't think it's coincidence that He wears a crown of thorns because in the wearing of that crown, He is showing Himself to having taken on the curse that you and I deserve. Carries it to the cross. Jesus says, by the way, in last comment in John, is that the sin of the one who delivered him was greater. I wonder who that's a reference to. There's at least two possibilities. One is Judas. The other would be Caiaphas. And I lean toward Caiaphas. Because Judas doesn't deliver Jesus directly to the Romans. He delivers him to the Jewish authorities. It is the Jewish authorities who deliver Jesus to the Romans. And because in the reference in John, it's a singular reference, he, not them, we must specifically pick a he. And the only he that would make sense in light of the Jewish authority would be Caiaphas, the senior most Jewish leader, guilty of a greater sin than Pilate. Greater meaning Pilate has his own sin, but if you were to rank them, the sin of Caiaphas ranks higher. Finally, the last thing they pull on Pilate, and the thing that eventually works. And we'll wrap up with this. In verse 12, the leaders pull the last card, basically, they have in their deck. They threaten Pilate. Up till now, they've tried false accusations. They've tried to uh, convince him he needed to do it to keep the peace. They've told him, you need to do it because he's violated our law. Finally, in the last attempt they have, they tell him, you know, if you don't do this, you're not a friend of Caesar. If you don't crucify him, you're not a friend of Caesar. To really appreciate why that worked, because in the end, that's the tactic that did work. The reason you have to appreciate it is you have to know something a little bit about Roman history in this day. Pilate came to power as the result of an influential friend who was a Roman senator, a man by the name of Sejanus. Sejanus was a member of the Roman Senate, and he used his influence in the Senate to get Pilate appointed to replace the prior Herod that ruled over Judea. But in the days since Pilate was appointed, Sejanus had been convicted of treason and executed. And now, what the Roman authorities were doing were systematically investigating all of Sejanus' friends to see just how far the conspiracy of treason might have gone. And Pilate, being known as one of those friends who reached his position of authority because of Sejanus, is nervous, understandably so. So he wouldn't have been especially happy about any accusation making its way back to Caesar saying that he wasn't supporting Caesar. He's particularly vulnerable, in other words, to that kind of an accusation where normally it probably wouldn't have carried much weight. So when they say, you know, by the way, you know, you're no friend of Caesar if you don't execute Christ, that was enough for him to say, all right, fine. I've had it with you people. And he gives over to their requests. Could he truly divorce himself of the sin of crucifying Christ? Remember in Matthew and Mark, that famous scene where he takes the bowl of water and he washes his hands. He says, you know, the blood of Christ is now on you. Does that work, by the way? Spiritually speaking, can we say, okay, he, you know, there's some official thing there and God said, oh, he did the hand-washing thing. God, 
Can't get him now. No. It's a statement. It's a political statement, if nothing else. But we know when Jesus said, He who turned me into you is of greater sin, that alone proves that Pilate was not without sin. So no, he didn't get a chance to say he wasn't going to be a part of the, the culpability here, much as he'd like to, I'm sure. Just because a person can find others to blame for prompting their behavior, that doesn't change the fact that they agreed to participate in it. So Pilate's guilty of putting Jesus to death. By the way, so was the Jewish crowd. So were all those people who called out to crucify Jesus, though they were being egged on by all those leaders, right? Of course, the leaders themselves are ultimately responsible. They're the chief sinners. But you know what? So were you and I. We're all guilty of Jesus going to the cross, every bit as much as those people were in the crowd. Because His death was conceived and carried out by a Father in Heaven who chose to do this as a response to your sin and to mine, as the only solution possible for our sin. So, I love the discussions when the, when the movie about the, the Passion of Christ came out. There were all those discussions about who's truly to blame for putting Christ to death. I mean, you and me and everybody on earth. I mean, the answer to that question is simple. I mean, if you want to talk about it mechanically, well, yeah, it was Pilate and the men who stood there on that day, but by God's grace, it wasn't us. Because we're just as guilty, and if we had been there, we would have done exactly the same thing they did. In a very real sense, it was you and I who called for his death from that crowd. Now consider it was the Father Himself who stood by during all of these events, watching them occur, and more than that, orchestrating them from His position on the throne in heaven. And He did so to ensure a desired outcome, and that being that Jesus would die at the hands of these evil men. What kind of God does that to His own Son for the sake of His creation? Romans gives us the answer to that. A God that demonstrates His love for us by this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the ultimate biblical definition of love. It's now, if, you, if you're keeping track, it's around 8 a.m. on Thursday morning. And Jesus is about to take His steps toward the cross. In less than an hour, He's going to be on the cross. Justice was swift in that day. And then we'll begin the long period of His suffering on the cross, which takes up the rest of the chapter and into chapter 24. So my voice is at its end, so we are at our end. Uh, we will pick up here next week in chapter 23, probably finish the chapter next week. Let's go to prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, can we ever fully get our minds around the concept, Father, that You would put Your Son to death for us? I dare say, Father, that if any father or mother were to be given the opportunity to save even one person in this world by the death of their own child, how many would take that opportunity? And You, Father, took Your Son and gave Him over for the opportunity to save a multitude. Father, as we consider that, we're humbled. We're awestruck. Father, as we even consider the penalty that He paid going to the cross and the whole way, Father, You suffered with Him as You watched. Father, we know You the measure of Your love by, we, by our understanding of that moment and, and all that You permitted to happen to Your Son. And, Father, what that love should do in our hearts as You command us is to, to go out, Father, to see others as children of God potentially who may likewise be saved by faith and to understand, Father, that they await a punishment as great or greater than the one You gave to Your own Son if they do not know You. And by that motivation, Father, we might work tirelessly to bring the good news to many. I hope, Father, and I pray that what we learned tonight would have that effect in our hearts. And that, Father, along the way, we might strive with everything we have to live a life in some measure worthy of what You did to save us.
that we could never hope to reach that level of worth, Father. We just pray that you would give us the strength by the Spirit to make our best effort to strive as much as we can in this life while we await our glorification. and In doing so, please you, Father, through our obedience. And then in the few weeks we have remaining, Father, I do praise you that we've been able to go this far in Luke, and I would ask that we could finish, that you would be with us to help that happen and bring others along the way to, to meet with us. And together, Father, we would finish this book as you have designed it. And let that begin next week, if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.